Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 35, The Man Who Might Be King. Now, if you have listened to the last episode, you'll know that I thanked the Victorian Periodical Parade podcast, love some alliteration, for their suggestion of the Crystal Palace. I did mention at the end that I went down some rabbit holes and had some fun researching it for the episode. So I want to give them some props for this episode as well, because there was one aspect to the Crystal Palace that I left out. Just because there were some fun, juicy historical details that I felt would be entertaining for you, dear listener. Now, we all know that the Great Exposition and the Crystal Palace was a stunning success, largely thanks to the amazing work of Joseph Paxton and support from men such as His Highness Prince Albert and the also now knighted Sir Henry Cole. But, at the time there was genuine concern about conducting an event like this. Why? Because even the rich had some idea of just how bad the poverty was for many living in the kingdom during the Victorian era. So many people living during this time could barely be said to be living hand to mouth. They eked out a living as best they could just trying to get through the day with some sort of meal, only to do it all again tomorrow. And having the rich upper class spend a truckload of money on the indulgence of showing off products and inventions and how awesome the United Kingdom was, well, no one really likes having their face rubbed in how dire their existence is, do they? I mean... 1% of the population were thinking there might be some sort of class war? Anyway, there was concern that because of this flagrant spending of money, jealousy would arise among the lower classes, and some sort of harm may come to Her Majesty Queen Victoria if she attended the exhibition. One man is quoted as saying, No human being can possibly answer for what may occur on the occasion. The end must shock every honest and well-meaning Englishman. End of quote. So there was genuine public concern that something might happen. And there is a reason that we have that particular quote on record because the man who said it was being earnest in his concern for the Queen. Actually, he was always Ernest, mainly because it was his name. He was Ernest Augustus, fifth son of King George III and uncle to our resident monarch, Queen Victoria. It was this quote of his that I found when I was doing the research for the Crystal Palace episode. So away we go on another royal ride.
so if you have listened to my King George the Third episode, that was actually the second episode, but I'm being pedantic now. Anyway, you'll know that faithful King George and his adored wife Charlotte had 15 children, nine sons and six daughters, no less. Ernest was the fifth son and was born at Buckingham House, which would eventually become Buckingham Castle on the 5th of June, 1771. As a young boy, the little Gemini lived with two of his younger brothers, Adolphus, who'd become the Duke of Cambridge, and also Augustus, who'd be the Duke of Sussex, with a tutor at what was now known as Kew Green. This was near his parents' residence at Kew Palace. Yes, even at that young age, they didn't live at home. And royalty aficionados will note the titles held by brothers Adolphus and Augustus would later be held by other brothers we know today as William and Harry. And now we step aside for just a moment of background, so do indulge me. The Hanoverian kings were called so because they came from the Kingdom of Hanover in what we now know as Germany. King Georges I and II were born there but came to rule in England. George II was the last British monarch born outside the kingdom. He had a son, Frederick, in England. And then Crown Prince Frederick had his own son, another George, so that's heir presumptive right there. Crown Prince Frederick died before his dad, George II, did, so he's out of the game, and thus Frederick's son, George, was bumped up to heir, and, spoiler alert, he later became George III. So, for those of you playing at home, the throne went George II, then grandson George III. I literally picked the worst era to explain succession. Way too many Georges. Now, George III never left England in his life, and the throne would eventually go to his son, and that's where we get George IV. But if you heard episode 16, you know that the soon-to-be George IV was a massive party animal, by royal appointment no less, and did it harder and better than anyone else. His dad, George III, knew this and didn't want his younger sons being influenced by the black sheep of the family. So when Ernest was 15, he and his younger brothers were sent off to the University of Gottingen in the family domain of Hanover. And you don't get to question that. When you're rich and your dad runs an empire, you can totally do uni at 15, regardless of your scores. Surprisingly, for a story narrative which completely spoils the whole arrogant rich kid vibe I was trying for, Ernest was actually a competent student and appreciative of what he had received. Quote, I should be one of the most ungrateful of men if ever I was forgetful of all that I owe to Gottingen and its professors. End quote. According to historian John van der Kist's work, this move to Hanover for the boys was a deliberate attempt to limit the influence of their older brother. From there, Ernest went on to military training and proved to be an excellent horseman and had an eye for shooting. 
Now, while he was learning under Captain Linsingen with the Queen's Light Dragoons, he was also kept under the watchful eye of Field Marshal Wilhelm von Freytag, who was also the man in charge. Surprising none of you listening, it was only after two months of training that Freytag took Ernest under his wing and made him a captain in the cavalry. In 1792, King George III, also known as Dad, commissioned his son as a colonel in the 9th Hanoverian Light Dragoons. And pausing for a moment to take questions from the audience, I hear you ask, Heath, what actually is a dragoon? Well, I am glad you asked. I've got it right here. Dragoons were mounted soldiers that would ride to a fight, then get off their horses for the battle. Over time and by the 19th century, they morphed into what we know today as cavalry. Now, I know it sounds like he's basically a rich kid getting promotions from daddy, but he did fight in battles in Europe under command of his brother while he was still alive and who was also the Duke of York. And Ernest wasn't kept in safe places because in 1793 he sustained a sabre wound to the head that left the scar and in 1794 a literal brush from a cannonball injured his arm and caused him to lose sight in his left eye. Recuperating in Britain, he then returned to duty. But hey, because he was a rich kid with a powerful dad, he was now a major general. But I will give him some credit here. The war wasn't going well for his side. He was part of a combination of European forces that were fighting the French at the time. He wanted to command men but wasn't given a fighting group and was shuffled around various postings in Hanover until he was allowed home to Britain to try and seek treatment for his blind eye. While in the United Kingdom, he constantly tried to join the British forces because they were in the fighting and the Hanoverian forces were not. He even threatened to join as an infantryman, if you can believe it, but his dad, the king, and brother, the Duke of York, wouldn't allow it. Now, I'm going to speculate here and make an opinion, but in 1799, when George III gave his son Ernest the newly minted title of Duke of Cumberland and Teviotdale, and also Earl of Armour, along with what today would be over a million pound a year salary, I'm thinking it was to keep him out of the fighting on the continent. This also made him a member of the House of Lords, and so he redirected his energy and got busy with politics. I'm sure this was a relief to his father in terms of him not fighting anymore, but the added fact that he was a leading light among the Tories, that's the Conservatives, was a double relief. I've mentioned before about soon-to-be George IV being rather liberal in his thinking. This often put him in conflict with his dad, the king, so for George III to have a son that was becoming a driving force aligned with his own regal interest must have been quite the blessing. Ernest's influence in Parliament aided in the formation of the Conservative government of Henry Addington. That doesn't really concern this story, but, and I'm definitely speculating here, the fact that he got a Conservative government in place 
might have something to do with the fact that his dad, the king, gave him a colonelcy in the 27th Light Dragoons. This led to another Dragoon position where he could involve himself far more in military life. I really do think that being in the military was a field that he enjoyed, so it was nice to see him turning a negative into a positive. And I'm guessing aside from Dad, his brother the Duke of York was impressed too, because a year later in 1803, brother Frederick the Duke made him a commander of one district, and when war broke out with France, again, he was further promoted to another important district, so that was definitely working out for him. Even with these homeland promotions, Ernest was itching to fight though. He continued trying to get into the fighting with France, and he finally managed to get into battle when the British government changed in 1807. The new Prime Minister that gave him his chance was William Henry Cavendish Bentinck, 3rd Duke of Portland. As an aside, the new PM was also the great-great-great-grandfather of our Queen Elizabeth II via her maternal grandmother. And let's face it, everything has always been about, well, who you know. And they also gave him 20,000 men. Nice. But then the French won the fight against the Prussians and the Swedes before Ernest got there, so I'm sure that was kind of annoying for him. But a year later in 1808, I'm sure he was consoled when he made a full general and they backdated it to 1805. And then we get what has become known as the, air quote it, Salus Incident. On May 31st, 1810, Prince Ernest was struck on the head several times. We know this because he said so. Spoiler, he lives. He was in bed at the time and the blows woke him up. I'm sure you've been there, right? Waking up is something we all do. So, in a way, we are all like royalty. <laughs> Getting up and running to the door, Ernest was wounded by a sword blow in the leg. Calling for help, one of his valets with the epic name of Cornelius aided him and raised the alarm. So everyone is running about trying to find out who attempted to kill the king's son and then they realise that Ernest's other valet, Joseph Sellis, there's a spoiler, was not among those running around. The lock was broken on Joseph's room and he was found with his throat cut. Even without social media, the case exploded in the papers and people everywhere were talking about it. One of the jurors was a social reformer and anti-monarchist who managed to have the inquest made public. And from what we all know of the gore-obsessed papers at the time, you can have some idea of just how much they trawled over all the details and offered extensive speculation. General public consensus was that Ernest had committed the crime. Anti-royalty propaganda was everywhere and offered gossip that was soaked up by the public. Think about how much we read about what the royals are doing these days. Magazines and online articles talk about what they're doing regardless of how trivial it is. And 
also I think we all recognize the stories that are clearly made up and they do this because it always sells. So when you have all the printed media of the day saying that Ernest was to blame for Joseph Salas's death, you know they were playing it up. And hot gossip was that Ernest was sleeping with Joseph's wife and that the attack was retaliation. Because sex always sells. Another version of this had Salas finding his wife and Ernest flagrante delecto, to use the legal term, <laughs> also known as being busted in bed together, and apparently it was then that Celis attacked the prince. Other more inventive gossip, for want of a better term, speculated that the prince was having an affair with Joseph or Cornelius. From there, someone got jealous with blackmail possibly being involved, and thus the attack occurred. So now you have some idea of the scuttlebutt that was doing the rounds at the time. And then we get to my favourite part and reinforcement of the despair that I have for humanity. Because many people did genuinely think the prince was guilty. Not because of the gossip I've just mentioned, but because of the gossip that they didn't even know. Historians John Vanderkist and Roger Fulford put this guilty prince idea down to another factor. Ernest may have had liaisons with women, but he kept them discreet. He didn't brag or talk about the offence later on. His brothers were of another sort though, and were well known for their dalliances. It was public knowledge that they were bed hopping with any number of women. And because Ernest didn't make his private life public, people literally thought he was guilty because they feared what he was up to in private must have been far worse than his philandering brothers. Like I said, the despair for humanity and cynicism I have is very real. <sighs> but regardless of all that, in the ensuing court case, the jury came back with a unanimous verdict of suicide against Celis, and Ernest was good to keep on princing and doing cavalry things which he did to the point that he received the highest promotion possible, becoming a field marshal in 1813. So our podcast subject is at the top of his game career-wise, and then catches up with Duchess Frederica of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. That's hyphenated. <laughs> now, Frederica had been married to Prince Louis Charles of Prussia. That only lasted three years. She had three children, and in that time then he died of diphtheria at the age of 23, in 1796. She then had an affair with Prince Frederick William of the House of Solms Brothmills, and in 1798, two years after her husband had died, Frederica was accidentally pregnant to Prince Frederick. He married her to avoid scandal, but sadly daughter Sophie died a few months later. The couple had a total of seven children together during their marriage. But aside from breeding like rabbits, Frederick was a big fan of alcohol. He had to leave the military in 1805 because of it. And later on, it got to the point where even his brother told Frederica to leave her husband. By 1813, she was literally at her wit's end. And it was here that she enters the story of our Ernest. 
they fell in love and it was now she decided she wanted a divorce to marry Ernest. Also, Frederica and Ernest were first cousins, but it was royalty. All cool there, I guess. Frederick had agreed to the divorce, but before it was finalised, he died. I'm speculating here, but I think it's a safe bet to say that alcohol was probably involved. Me having said that though, there were rumours that Frederica had poisoned her husband, naturally. But that said, please refer to my earlier comments about gossip and made up stories, because there was absolutely no evidence that this was the case. That happened in April of 1814, and by August the engagement to Ernest was announced to the public. And hearkening back to our podcast Kingdom of Choice, I'm sure many of you realise that 1814 was part of the Regency period. Technically, King George III was in charge of the Empire, but given his health issues, it was during this time that soon-to-be George IV was regent and doing all the kingly things. One of which was him having to approve his brother getting married. I know it's part of the whole royalty thing that the sovereign has to approve marriages into the family, and I think it's at least barely tolerable when it has to be one of your parents, them being king or queen. But it has to really burn when it's your brother deciding whether or not you can marry the person you love. Anyway, they got married and that was all good. Despite his war disfigurements and her being so old, Frederica was an ancient 35. At the time that they wed, the couple did genuinely love each other. But Ernest's mother, good Queen Charlotte, did not approve of the marriage. From her point of view, Frederica was a twice-wed woman with a bundle of children. And the fact that she had also previously been engaged to Ernest's younger brother Adolphus, the Duke of Cambridge, and then dumped him publicly was also a mark against poor Frederica. Got you there. (laughs) Don't forget this is all European royalty I'm podcasting about. There is only so many people they can hook up with. Now, Queen Charlotte refused to attend the wedding and encouraged the couple to live outside of the United Kingdom. Now, I'm sure some of you know more of the royal titles and names than me, but if you recall, I did mention earlier that Ernest and Frederica were first cousins. That was because Queen Charlotte of the United Kingdom had the maiden name of Sophia Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz the same Mecklenburg-Strelitz as Frederica, because Frederica's dad, Duke Charles Louis Frederick, was Charlotte's brother. So Queen Charlotte refused to go to the wedding of her son and her own niece. Ouch. Sadly, she never reconciled with the couple, though. Queen Charlotte passed away in 1818. Now, this next part has been really tricky to put together, so we can all follow it, and I am definitely including me in that we. I'm literally 
kind of podcasting something with a lot of people and events, largely with the annoyingly same names, so I'm thinking it might be best to go in some sort of point form. Here we go. Prince Regent George, who will soon be George IV, had one daughter, Charlotte. Princess Charlotte was the only legitimate heir to her dad. Princess Charlotte married Prince Leopold of saxe coburg salfeld setting things up nicely for her having children and continuing dynastic succession. But Princess Charlotte died after giving birth to a stillborn son. This meant that while George IV was going to happen, after that, all bets were off. So, whoever was the oldest child of George III that had a child was making a monarch. The baby race was on as King George III's sons all sought to get married and have the crown heir. And after a tragic stillbirth of a daughter in 1819, we see Frederica having a son, George. In 1820, Ernest's older brother, Edward the Duke of Kent, his son number four, Ernest being number five, died. So we've lost son number four. He left behind his daughter, Princess Victoria of Kent. Six days later, King George III dies. So now George IV is king. Next in line is his brother, slash son number two, Frederick Duke of York. And then third was son number three, William, Duke of Clarence. And then the aforementioned Princess Victoria of Kent because she's the daughter of son four. Now, Frederica would give birth to three more children with Ernest. Two sadly passed away early, but one, as I said, was born in 1819 and survived. So after Princess Victoria, next in line is Ernest and then his son, George. Now, I know we're getting into some longer numbers. <laughs> At this time, Ernest was number four in line. His son, George, is number five. But he's also number two when you take into account they're the next generation of the royal house. Now, these days we have become used to people living to a great age. Of course, this is a good thing. My parents are both in their 80s and happily enjoying life. And I can speculate and say most of us know people in their 60s and 70s who are just as active. But you have to remind yourself that during the 19th century, the average life expectancy for a male was the low 40s. And unfortunately, women died even earlier. The population had a much greater relationship with death. Take, for example, Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, who I am sure you are familiar with, is currently number five for the throne. Of course, we've got King Charles now, and then we have Prince William, and William's three children, George, Charlotte, and Louis. Because I hadn't put enough Georges and Charlottes in this podcast, honestly, I am my own worst enemy. And as number five, we really only see Harry as being in line, but it's never really going to happen that he'll be king. But as I've mentioned, Frederica lost two of her children early, and Princess Victoria's father died early too. So it was really easy for you to be bumped up in the numbers of succession thanks to a lack of medical knowledge and mortality rates. 
so Prince Harry would have been a genuine consideration for the throne back in the day. And just like Ernest and his son were becoming, well, maybe not Ernest, but Princess Victoria of Kent was, as I said, number one successor of the next generation after George III's sons. But Victoria was a girl in a male-dominated world. The usual prejudices were all well entrenched, and no one expected anything of some young lady who was only in the running because sons hadn't been born. Plus, she had to live long enough to inherit the throne, and, like I just mentioned, people died early and suddenly all the time. And to prove my point, in 1827, Prince Frederick, Duke of York, heir to George IV's throne, died, age 63. So this puts brother William in line for the throne, then Princess Victoria. So Ernest is now third in line, and his son George was, dare I say it, fourth. So while we kind of have that going on in the background, it was during this time that Ernest and his family returned to live in England. In 1828, Ireland was having a flare-up of the ongoing Catholic v Protestant fighting. Ernest supported the Protestants and influenced his brother King George IV to go against what became known as the Catholic Relief Act of 1829. At this time, Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, was Prime Minister and he actually resigned over the matter as he refused to continue without the support of the King. The Duke of Wellington was an Irish Protestant and while personally opposed to the bill, saw the political and practical expediency in supporting equal rights regardless of religion in Ireland. The King relented and recalled the Duke as Prime Minister, and the bill passed to law. I have mentioned this bill before, and just as a reminder to me as well as you listening, this legal change meant that Catholics were allowed to take seats in Parliament, and thus having political representation. So not only is Ernest and his son becoming players in the succession to the throne, he's involving himself in Irish politics. And then came the gossip and slander. Yes, I know, this is the stuff you love the most. Me too. King George III had an equerry, Thomas Garth. An equerry was a man in charge of the stables, but in royal parlance, it was also a position of great social influence and power. Rumours had started that Thomas was the illegitimate son of Princess Sophia. Sophia was the 12th child slash fifth daughter of King George III. And the father of Thomas was apparently Sophia's brother, Ernest. This was of course absolute rubbish, but the rumour, which was reportedly started with the wife of the Russian ambassador of all people, was spread to discredit Ernest's attempt to stop Catholic emancipation. Then Ernest was reported that during a social event to have assaulted the wife of Lord Lyndhurst, which saw him thrown out of the Lord's house. Next was his reported affair with Lady Graves. This was in 1830 when he was 59. She was near his age being in her 50s, so no shock value for the papers to work with there. Lady Graves was also the mother of 15 children and her husband was Lord Graves. 
Lord Graves was actually an important man on Ernest's staff. He was in charge of all his finances, as well as holding the title of Lord of the Bedchamber. <laughs> Again, this is one of those weird titles. It basically meant that he was there as a valet to Ernest, a sometime companion, and also screened visitors. Naturally, being this close to a person of power gave them power, so it was a coveted spot to have in a royal household. Lord Graves came out publicly in support of his wife and Prince Ernest, stating that he felt her innocent of the accusation. He then promptly cut his own throat in suicide. Now, we've already had Ernest being involved in speculation over the death of Joseph Sellis, so you can imagine the field day that the press had with this new, possibly suspicious death. Here was a prince of the realm involved in the possible murder of another man, possibly the husband of the woman he was possibly having an affair with. And yet, with the suicide note not being found with the body, eventually the story ran out of steam. But it has to be admitted that Ernest did hold a high level of influence with his brother King George IV, and it's speculated that this was the reason for all the rumours. For all the years he had been living in what is now Germany, nothing had really been said. Yet upon his return to the United Kingdom, all this gossip gets splattered over the newspapers of the day. This all happened in 1828 and 1829, and no doubt would have continued to go on. But then in 1830, George IV, King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, and King of Hanover, died. The throne, or thrones I guess you could say, then went to his brother William, who becomes William IV. And then it gets really interesting for Ernest and his family. As I said, William becomes William IV. He had two daughters, both of whom sadly died young, and thus in terms of the United Kingdom, this meant that Princess Victoria of Kent was heir to the throne of the United Kingdom. But in Hanover, well, things worked a little differently. Princess Victoria was ineligible to hold the throne because basically she was a woman. So what happened now was that William IV was on the throne, Victoria was the crown princess due to inherit, and Ernest was the crown prince for Hanover. Keeping a sideline very short, since the late 1700s there had been a fraternal order that had started in Ireland, known as the Loyal Orange Institution, or more commonly the Orange Order. They were a Protestant group that was very anti-Catholic. You might remember I said that Ernest was pretty anti-Catholic. The Orange Order were well entrenched in the kingdom's military by the 1830s, and when William took the throne, it became understood that Princess Victoria was now heir, rumblings began. One parliamentary member, Joseph Hume, is quoted as saying that Victoria should be excluded from regal succession on the basis of her, quote, age, sex, and incapacity, end quote. Clearly, not a man to mince words. And those rumblings agreed with Hume, and there was strong support that after William, Ernest should take the throne and not Victoria. 
This escalated through Parliament, but was convincingly shot down when Ernest himself stated that, quote, I would shed my last drop of blood for my niece, end quote. Naturally, this created more rumours that he was actually planning on murdering Victoria and taking the throne, humans being humans after all. But it all became moot on the 20th of June, 1837, because that's when King William IV died and Princess Victoria of Kent now became Queen Victoria. And she was just 18 years old. Thanks to sexist law, Prince Ernest became King of Hanover. As King, Ernest dismissed the constitution that had been in place since 1833, but upheld the laws that it had created. This meant that all office holders in the government had to renew their oaths of allegiance to the King. This also included the professors from the Göttingen University. Seven professors refused to do so and were exiled from the Kingdom of Hanover. Two of them were brothers, Jacob and Wilhelm. This caused extreme financial hardship for them and their families, although they would go on to create the first definitive German dictionary. Published in 1854, its ongoing improvement would be a lifelong project. Most of you wouldn't know that. I certainly didn't. But I have heard of Snow White, Red Riding Hood, Sleeping Beauty, and Hansel and Gretel though, because Jacob and Wilhelm had a bleak surname and a very specific set of folklore skills. We know them as the Brothers Grimm, and King Ernest kicked them out. Actions like this had more of the public back in the United Kingdom turning against Ernest. He was, after all, still the next in line as long as Victoria remained childless, and his son George was next. However, George was being called into question. Ernest's son had been born in 1819, and a childhood illness in 1828 saw him lose sight in one eye. An accident in 1833 saw him lose sight in the other, so the heir was unfortunately a blind boy. This wasn't exactly something that went down well in society at the time. Aside from this political issue, Ernest was determined to bring the kingdom into the 19th century. He advocated and supported having gas lamps placed throughout the city. I'm a fan right there. He also pushed forward for a new sanitation system as well as residential zones to improve the lifestyles of residents. Additionally, he aided in having Hanover become a major railway junction, which had a great economical benefit to the kingdom. I also really like the fact that he regularly travelled around his kingdom and allowed anyone to bring a petition or matter of concern to him. He also changed the rules for working in ministerial positions to be based on skill and merit. This was a really important step because it meant people from lower socio-economic classes could move up in society. And despite his anti-Catholic sentiment in the United Kingdom, Ernest saw no historical reason for issues here in Hanover and he didn't restrict the participation of Catholics in Parliament kind of an odd judgment call and I'm not really sure what his reasoning behind this might have been. 
my confusion as to his motivations increased when I read that he also continued to refuse Jews' admission into British Parliament, but allowed them to have equal rights in Hanover. Little background on this one. The Germany we know of today is one whole country. A lot of us will remember there being an East and West Germany thanks to communism, and going back before that, one Germany that kept picking fights with the rest of Europe. But go back before that into our century of choice, and there was no Germany the country, but rather a collection of states and kingdoms that were Germanic in their societies, but not united as a whole. In fact, there was at one point 39 of these Germanic states. The largest of these was Prussia, which most of us have heard of, and another of these was Ernest, Kingdom of Hanover. During the 1840s, a lot of Europe was changing, especially in 1848, when Europe basically went into full-scale revolution everywhere. Political forces in the Germanic states were less violent, but there were strong pressures to unite the various states into one country. Prussia, in particular, was advocating this. I'm going to horrendously skim over these political aspects insofar as it covers Ernest's life, but he was concerned about the loss of his kingdom and preferred to remain a supportive but independent Germanic state. And it wasn't just Ernest that was concerned with losing Hanoverian identity. In that European year of revolutions, 1848, there were demonstrations advocating a united German state. Ernest turned around and said, fine, keep protesting, I'll take my bat and ball and go home to Britain. Okay, last part was just me, but he did threaten to take his son George with him. Now, even though George was blind, he was still the Crown Prince of Hanover. So the protesters backed down and Ernest even got a more liberal constitution out of it. So he wasn't exactly naive when it came to political fighting. And Ernest was invested in Hanover as his kingdom, because as I said, the 1840s were a hectic time of change, not the least of which was that on the 21st of November 1840, when Princess Victoria Adelaide Mary Louisa was born. Just to be clear, Queen Victoria gave birth to a daughter she named Victoria. She was also known as Vicky to her family, and I'll definitely be covering her another time. Princess Vicky would remain heir to the throne until her brother Albert, also known as King Edward VII, was born. But getting that podcast back on track, the birth of Vicky bumped Ernest down the line of succession and meant that he was pretty much staying in Hanover. He did return to the United Kingdom as King of Hanover only once in 1843. Ernest's brother Adolphus, the Duke of Cambridge, had a daughter, Augustus. In 1843, she got married to her second cousin, yet another Frederick, and it was at this wedding that Ernest went to. I only mention this because even though this was royalty, what happened was such a family politics thing to have happen. Because Ernest thought that as king, he had massive social standing, and it should be there a second only to Queen Victoria as a signatory on the marriage certificate. This despite the fact that by now, Queen Victoria was married to Prince Albert. So when names were being added to the certificate, 
Prince Albert wrote his so close underneath his wife's, there was no space for Ernest to fit his name in. See, royalty, they're just as petty as the rest of us. <laughs> Back in Hanover, King Ernest ruled and toured his Germanic states, basically being a rich old white guy. 1851 saw him turn a respectable 80 years old, and it was on the 18th of November of that year that after a short illness, King Ernest of Hanover died. There is a large equestrian statue of him outside Hanover Central Station. It's apparently a popular meeting place given its civic prominence, and people say to meet Untermschwanz. I apologise for the accent, but in German it apparently translates to under the tail. Prince and then King Ernest were generally judged as having been an average prince of the kingdom, but seen better as a king of Hanover. He brought in some new industrial changes as well as maintaining stability in the region during that year of 1848, when Europe was basically tearing itself apart. Upon his death, Ernest's son George inherited the throne, even though he was blind. He became George V of Hanover, and don't confuse him with the later George V that we get in the UK. He married Marie of Saxe-Altenburg and they had two children, a boy, Ernest Augustus, and two daughters, Frederica and Marie. So the family just kept recycling names, I guess. They certainly kept using the Ernest Augustus. Each generation had one, and the fourth one is still alive. He's currently married to Princess Stephanie of Monaco. But our Ernest was right about one thing during his life. In 1866, 15 years after Ernest had died, Hanover chose the Austrian side in the Austro-Prussian War. They were defeated and Prussia annexed the kingdom into the new German state. The title basically exists in name only today. I know covering the fifth son of a king was mainly outside of the 19th century might seem slightly obscure, but I'm wanting you to keep in mind just how far the influence of the British royal family was extending throughout Europe and would continue to do so during the 1800s and into the 1900s. One last piece of trivia that further reinforces just how many royals from this family end up everywhere. Princess Vicky, you remember her, well she married Frederick III. He went on to become German Emperor, well for 99 days anyway but their son would be Wilhelm II, and he was Kaiser when Germany entered World War I. But given how long this episode is, I'm taking my leave right there. Also, I'm really sorry for all the Frederick, Fredericks, multiple George names. I do try and keep it casually scripted to make it easier to follow when you're driving or working or however else it is you take time to listen to podcasts. That's when I do it, so I'm aware of that. Anyway... Here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. If you could follow me on Twitter, that'd be great, at VicGaslamp, and more importantly, on Instagram, where I post history facts and trivia, as well as photos related to the episodes. And I'm Victorian Gaslamp there as well. The next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that. And I'll see you next time under the gas lamp. <laughs>